Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. But on reflection, 
I understood that these seeming clouds were due to the varying thickness of the reeds at the bottom, and I could even see the fleecy foam which their broken tops multiplied on the water, and the shadows of large birds passing above our heads, whose rapid flight I could discern on the surface of the sea. For two hours we followed these sandy plains, then fields of algae very disagreeable to cross. Candidly, I could do no more when I saw a glimmer of light, which for half a mile broke the darkness of the waters. It was the lantern of the Nautilus. Before twenty minutes were over, we should be on board, and I should be able to breathe with ease, for it seemed that my reservoir supplied air very deficient in oxygen. But I did not reckon on an accidental meeting which delayed our arrival for some time. I had remained some steps behind when I presently saw Captain Nemo coming hurriedly towards me. With his strong hand, he bent me to the ground, his companion doing the same to Conseil. At first, I knew not what to think of this sudden attack, but I was soon reassured by seeing the captain lie down beside me and remain immovable. I was stretched on the ground, just under the shelter of a bush of algae, when, raising my head, I saw some enormous mass casting phosphorescent gleams pass blusteringly by. I recognized two formidable sharks with enormous tails and a dull glassy stare. The phosphorescent matter ejected from holes pierced around the muzzle. I did not know whether Conseil stopped to classify them. For my part, I noticed their silver bellies and their huge mouths bristling with teeth from a very unscientific point of view. Happily, the creatures do not see well. They passed without seeing us, brushing us with their brownish fins. Half an hour after, guided by the electric light, we reached the Nautilus. The outside door had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it as soon as we had entered the first cell. He then pressed a knob. I heard the pumps working in the midst of the vessel. I felt the water sinking from around me, and in a few moments, the cell was entirely empty. The inside door then opened, and we entered the vestry. There, our diving dress was taken off, not without some trouble, and, fairly worn out from want of food and sleep, I returned to my room. In great wonder at this surprising excursion at the bottom of the sea, Chapter 17. 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before, and I went up onto the platform, just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence, and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and leant on the cage of the watchlight, 
and gazed abstractedly on the ocean. In the meantime, a number of the sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to drop the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognized some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, some Sclavs, and a Greek. They were civil, and only used that odd language among themselves, the origin of which I could not guess, neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. They were a large kind, like those on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and a chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in their way. That day, they brought up curious specimens from those productive coasts. I reckoned that the hall had brought in more than 900 weight of fish. It was a fine haul, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food, and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and others pickled. The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed. I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion and was preparing to return to my room when, without further preamble, the captain turned to me saying, Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods. Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has woke after a quiet night. Look, he continued, it wakes under the caresses of the sun. It is going to renew its diurnal existence. It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organization. It has a pulse, arteries, spasms, and I agree with the learned Mori, who discovered in circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals. Yes, the ocean has indeed circulation, and to promote it, the Creator has caused things to multiply in it, caloric, salt, and animal. When Captain Nemo spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses, which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breathe at the surface of the water. Free towns, independent cities. Yet, who knows whether some despot, Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture, 
then addressing me as if to chase away some sorrowful thought. Monsieur Aranax, he asked, do you know the depth of the ocean? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. Could you tell me them so that I can suit them to my purpose? These are some, I replied, that I remember, if I am not mistaken. A depth of 8,000 yards has been found in the North Atlantic and 2,500 yards in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic, near the 35th parallel, and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards. To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were leveled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain, we shall show you better than that, I hope. As to the mean depth of this part of the Pacific, I tell you it is only 4,000 yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him and went into the large drawing room. The screw was immediately put in motion, and the log gave 20 miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, Captain Nemo was very sparing of his visits. I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart, so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day, for some time, the panels of the drawing room were opened, and we were never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between 100 and 150 yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25 centigrade, a temperature that at this depth seemed common to all latitudes. At three o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 degrees longitude. On 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands where Cook died February 14th, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to windward Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that form the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side and the volcanoes that overtop Mauna Kea which rise 5,000 yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things that Nets brought up were several flabellaria and graceful polypi that are peculiar to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast. It crossed the equator December 1st in 142 degrees longitude and on the 4th of the same month after crossing rapidly 
and without anything in particular occurring, we sighted the Marquesas group. I saw three miles off Martin's Peak in Nukahiva, the largest of the group that belongs to France. I only saw the woody mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to the wind. There, the nets brought up beautiful specimens of fish, some with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivaled, some nearly destitute of scales, but of exquisite flavor, others with bony jaws and yellow-tinged gills as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands, protected by the French flag, from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed about 2,000 miles. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing room. Ned Land and Conseil watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs were filled, it kept at a depth of a thousand yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean, and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Mace, The Servants of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it, when Conseil interrupted me. Will Master come here a moment? He said in a curious voice. What is the matter, Conseil? I want Master to look. I rose, went, and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean. But a sudden thought crossed my mind. A vessel, I said, half aloud. Yes, replied the Canadian, a disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly. Ned Land was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order, and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts. But, lying on its side, it had filled, and it was healing over to port. The skeleton of what it had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves. However, the Nautilus turning went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant, I read on the stern, the Florida Sunderland. Chapter 18 Vanicoro As long as it went through more frequented waters, we often saw the hulls of shipwrecked vessels that were rotting in the depths and deeper down cannons, bullets, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron materials eaten up by rust. However, on the 11th of December, we sighted 
the Pomotu Islands, the old dangerous group that extend over a space of 500 leagues at east-southeast to west-northwest. This group covers an area of 300 square leagues, and it is formed of 60 groups of islands, among which, among which France exercises sway. These are coral islands, slowly raised, but continuous, created by the daily work of Polypi. Then this new island will be joined later on to the neighboring groups, and a fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand, and from thence to Marquesas. One day, when I was suggesting this theory to Captain Nemo, he replied coldly, the earth does not want new continents, but new men. Chance had conducted the Nautilus toward the island of Clermont, one of the most curious of the group that was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. I could study now the system to which are due the islands in this ocean. Madripoor's which must not be mistaken for corals, have a tissue lined with a calcareous crust, and the modifications of its structure have induced Messier Edwards, my worthy master, to class them into five sections. The animalcule that the marine polypus secretes live by millions at the bottom of their cells. Their calcareous deposits become rocks, reefs, and large and small islands. Here they form a ring surrounding a little inland lake that communicates with the sea by means of gaps. There they make barriers of reefs like those on the coasts of New Caledonia and the various Pomaton Islands. In other places, like those at Reunion and at Maurice, they raise fringed reefs, high, straight walls, near which the depth of the ocean is considerable. Some cable lengths off the shores of the island of Clermont, I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopical workers. These polypi are found particularly in the rough beds of the sea near the surface and consequently it is from the upper part that they begin their operations, in which they bury themselves by degrees with the debris of the secretions that support them, such is, at least in Darwin's theory, who thus explains the formation of the atolls, a superior theory, to my mind, to that given of the foundation of the madriporical works summits of mountains or volcanoes that are submerged some feet below the level of the sea. I could observe closely these curious walls, for perpendicularly they were more than 300 yards deep, and our electric sheets lighted up this calcareous matter brilliantly. Replying to a question Conseil asked me, as to the time these colossal barriers took to be raised, 
I astonished him by telling him that learned men reckoned it about the eighth of an inch in a hundred years. Towards evening, Clermont was lost in the distance, and the route of the Nautilus was sensibly changed, and having crossed the Tropic of Capricorn in 135 degrees longitude, it sailed west-northwest, making again for the tropical zone. Although the summer sun was very strong, we did not suffer from heat, for at fifteen or twenty fathoms below the surface, the temperature did not rise above from ten to twelve degrees. On the fifteenth of December, we left the east, the bewitching group of the societies and the graceful Tahiti, queen of the Pacific. I saw in the morning some miles to the windward, the elevated summits of the island. These waters furnished our table with excellent fish, mackerel, bonitos, and some varieties of a sea serpent. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of new Hebrides discovered by Quiros in 1606 and that Bougainville explored in 1768, and to which Cook gave its present name in 1773. This group is composed principally of nine large islands that form a band of 120 leagues, north-north-south to south-southwest, between 15 degrees and 2 degrees south latitude, and 164 degrees and 168 degrees longitude. We passed tolerably near the island of Oro, that at noon looked like a mass of green woods, surmounted by a peak of great height. That day being Christmas Day, that land seemed to regret sorely the non-celebration of Christmas. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week, when on the morning of the 27th he came into the large drawing room, always seeming as if he had seen you five minutes before. I was busily tracing the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere. The captain came up to me, put his finger on one spot of the chart, and said this single word, Vanicoro. The effect was magical. It was the name of the islands on which Ruse had been lost. I rose suddenly. The Nautilus has brought us to Vanicoro? I asked. Yes, Professor, said the captain. And I can visit the celebrated islands? If you like, Professor. When shall we be there? We are there now. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up onto the platform and greedily scanned the horizon. To the northeast, two volcanic islands emerged of unequal size, surrounded by a coral reef that measured 40 miles in circumference. We were close to Vanicoro, and exactly facing the little harbor of Venu, situated in 16 degrees, 4 minutes south latitude, and 164 degrees, 
32 minutes east longitude. The earth seemed covered with verdure from the shore to the summits in the interior that were crowned by Mount Capogo, 476 feet high. The Nautilus, having passed the outer belt of rocks by a narrow strait, found itself among breakers where the sea was from 30 to 40 fathoms deep. Under the verdant shade of some mangroves, I perceived some islanders who appeared greatly surprised at our approach. In the long black body moving between wind and water, did they not see some formidable cetacean that they regarded with suspicion? Just then, Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the wreck of La Perouge. Only what everyone knows, Captain, I replied. And could you tell me what everyone knows about it? He inquired, ironically. Easily. I related to him all that the last works had made known, works from which the following is a brief account. La Perouge and his captain were sent by Louis XVI in 1785 on a voyage of circumnavigation. They embarked, and neither of which were again heard of. In 1791, the French government, justly uneasy as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large merchantmen, which left the 28th of September. Two months later,